Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 through 28. We jumped off for uh, two weeks to do something on prayer and fasting, jump back into the text in Hebrews and the series that we're in, and it sets us right into a text that's kind of perfect for uh, Easter. Uh, So let's read. Uh, it, It says this, Hebrews 9. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For uh, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first commandment was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the book uh, itself and all the people. Uh, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used for worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hold on to that one. Uh, Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into the heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God, or now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, uh, nor was it to offer himself repeated as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's a great place for an amen. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, once after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you draw near to us? Uh, We want to see the beauty uh, of what you have done through Christ. Uh, may we see it profoundly. May we see it deeply. May our hearts rejoice in it. You have been so good and you have been so kind and there's a beautiful sacrifice available to those who would, who would believe. Uh, let our hearts rejoice in that. Let our hearts find rest uh, in that. May our cynicism be defeated and may our faith uh, grow. We pray that in your name. Amen. Uh, so again, it's good to be here on Easter. It's fun to watch. Some of you get dressed to the to the nines, right? And some of you are dressed to the nines as I didn't wear shorts today, or I wore shorts with a button up. That's still that's still cool. It's fun to watch the kids run around and go search for the eggs. Uh, the The excitement around Easter is a neat deal. And I mean, who doesn't love Cadbury eggs? As I went through the drive-through at Starbucks this morning, they had a tally. Uh, of Peeps versus Cadbury eggs, and Peeps was actually winning, which is very odd to me. But who doesn't like, you should like Cadbury eggs more. Who doesn't like Cadbury eggs? Who doesn't like the cute pictures? Uh, Who doesn't like the pastel colors? It's a great thing. There's a lot of beauty surrounding the day. Uh, But even as we said, before we kind of get to uh, the Easter egg hunt, the crux of all of this is the cornerstone declaration uh, that Christ is alive that he's risen, the tomb is empty, and that sin and death were defeated. That is the substance. My hope and prayer for us is that we wouldn't have to try and kind of manufacture 
excitement for that. Uh, I don't want to have to try and project my voice in a way that I normally wouldn't on other weeks. Uh, The hope is that the Spirit of God would rightly show us how great what Christ did is, how wonderful it is that he has died and yet lives again, and that our hearts would find just beauty in that. There can be a tension on Easter to try and like connect back to a historical date and to, and to like make it feel meaningful, to connect with the death and the resurrection in like a fresh or powerful way. And yet as we open the book of Hebrews today and get back into our series, we land on a text that says, gaze towards our future hope. The, the, the author is pointing you, hey, I want you to, to look at the reality of uh, the, the, the future promised inheritance, the eternal inheritance that you have in Christ. So Easter shouldn't just be an anchor to the past if you are in Christ. Easter also recalls what comes in the future. It isn't just about what is done, even though that's a large, large part of it, but it expresses what has been done so it can point to the beauty of what is still to come. Jesus has done something great, and that means something great in our future as well. So in that vein, we can kind of let off the pressure to try and uh, maybe make this day feel larger uh, than it needs to be. Uh, We can just uh, relax and get a pure picture of the fullness of Christ and what he has uh, done for us. There's an interesting tension um, around Easter. It's celebrating a time that we're wearing like bright clothes and, and we, we look adorable or we kind of try to, or we, we, we decorate things, we feel refined, things are polished, things are sweet. Uh, and yet the interesting side of all that beauty around Easter is Easter can't be celebrated in a vacuum like that. The only way to get to the beauty of Easter is actually to deal with the unattractive parts as well, the suffering. There is no uh, resurrection, no bright morning, no beautiful day, no excitement without a brutal cross and the flowing of blood and the broken body and the death of Jesus. You do not get to one without the other. You don't get to walk in the hope without seeing the suffering, which is why this text is probably pretty good for us this Easter. It declares to us the often thought of uncivilized or rejected reality that under the law, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. That's what we saw in verse 22. Without blood, there's, there's no forgiveness. There is uh, no ability to be atoned. That's it. And there's an old hymn by uh, William Cowper that kind of deals with this. It says this, there is a fountain filled with blood. And let yourself not push into the metaphor and just actually hear what he's saying. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, there seems to be a little bit of a slide where uh, we have accidentally over time recreated Jesus outside of a lens of the Old Testament, where Jesus' person and work and life and death are viewed in such a way that doesn't remember the Old Testament or the Old Covenant either. And because of that, it can make this hymn kind of hard to process and and hard to, to look at and hard to understand. Again, the words, there's a fountain of blood. Not of water. Can you imagine rolling down the, the Roman streets and looking for a fountain of blood? There's a fountain of blood. And that blood, it came from somewhere. It's not food coloring. It came from somewhere, and it actually came from someone. The imagery in the hymn is the blood flowed out of the arm of Christ. 
And then the imagery goes even further. If that doesn't make you uncomfortable, it presses even further in that a person, a sinner, is plunged all the way beneath that fountain of blood in a baptism of blood, and that person, when immersed, is found clean. That's the duality of the horror of the picture and the beauty of the result. The the modern mind can try and separate itself a little bit from this. And it can separate itself from the the image and lean heavily on the the metaphorical side or the the poetic side. And and yet the the author kind of presses so that you can't do that. It is beneath that flood under it when a person is submerged that they become clean in the face of that kind of hard to look at scene is the place that purity comes. Our minds run from that. And yet that is the image of salvation. Right, we have all these beautiful eggs and things that are wonderful, and yet that's actually what we're celebrating is this fountain of blood. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, and there's no other way to do it. There's not another path, there's not a, a, another mode, and, and there's no other way to be forgiven because, as the text says, under the law, things are only purified with blood, and again, without blood, no purification or forgiveness is given. This message is the exact stumbling block for Christianity for a lot of the world. Right? They reject the message of Christ or the idea of atonement before God because the logic tends to be for much of the world, how can a God who is love require such a thing? How can this good and civilized and loving and compassionate God require that picture of blood? It seems too ar- archaic or too vile or too prehistoric, but the angle is all wrong. The point isn't that God is brutal, The point is that sin is brutal. Sin is the death bringer. To deal with Seth, or to to deal with sin is not a small deal. The people in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant would have known this well. Again, the modern mind, how can God who's loved do that? And the Old Covenant tells us why. I watched a guy post online this week, my God wouldn't do that. My God's loving and, and, and he wouldn't pour wrath on the sun and, and he wouldn't do that and he wouldn't turn his back away. And all I could think of is, I don't like your God then because w- without that God, we're in a whole lot of trouble. It is only in this way that we become clean. Again, it's hard to look at, but the Old Testament explains it over and over and over again. In the text, we see that it says Jesus is the, the mediator of the, the new covenant, he mediates this new covenant so that we who are called may receive what it calls the promised inheritance, our future hope, as I was mentioning. And what exactly is that eternal inheritance that the author is speaking of? In this context, it's kind of a, a synonymous with the present and future work of Jesus' salvific work. More specifically, when we look at eternal inheritance, we're looking at eternal redemption, to be redeemed eternally. Why is Jesus the the mediator of the new and better covenant? So that those who are called may receive eternal redemption. Not temporary, not partial, but full and complete eternal redemption. To to redeem something comes from the language of slavery. But not maybe the slavery that we would think of in, in light of the early history of the United States or the colonial world, but slavery in biblical times. If a person was sold into slavery and they could sell themselves in, Their parents could sell them in, war could sell them in. There's a lot of reasons that people would have gone into slavery. But what happens is someone gets sold into slavery. The only way out of that, though, would be to to be bought out. So there's a price to be paid. You're given a payment as someone goes in. And the only way to get out is to pay it 
back. The obligation would stand if it is not paid back. So Jesus is the one, what we're seeing in the text is Jesus is the one who came to pay the debt that we owed in our slavery to sin. Sin was what bought us in. It is what made us captive to it. And yet Jesus came and paid that bill in full with his blood. The understanding is when Jesus pays the bill, though, it's paid in full forever. When Jesus redeems someone, there is no chance that they're going to be re-enslaved or re-put in debt again. The reality the text shows us is we sold ourselves into sin willingly. And yet Jesus buys us out willingly with the cost of his blood. The text reminds us even the old covenant was inaugurated or started with blood. When Moses brought the Ten Commandments and the the old covenant to the people in Exodus, the old covenant, again, was kicked off in blood. Exodus 24 tells us about this. Oxen are killed, and the blood is taken, and it's thrown onto, not sprinkled, it's thrown onto the altar, the place that sacrifices are made. And then the blood is then thrown onto the stones that the covenant is, is written on. And then the often overlooked part of the part that we don't really want to look at very cl- uh, closely. And the rest of the blood from the oxen, it says, is thrown onto the people. Like not metaphorically, it was thrown onto them, drawing us right back to, to Cowper's hymn centuries later. The imagery of a people being covered with it, absolutely covered with it. It may seem graphic, but again, it is what purifies. If you hear that and think, man, I don't, I don't know, that's kind of hard to, to, to look at. I, I, are you kind of pouring it on to be extra? The, the text shows it. When we get in our mind that this picture is too horrific of a people covered with blood, when we think maybe it's, it's ghastly or it's gruesome or it's disturbing, the reality is it, it's because that's the image that you're supposed to get. Sin is gruesome. Sin is disturbing. It's not a light and trivial deal. It's not a cosmic uh uh-oh. It's not an accident. Sin is horrific. Sin is the death bringer. Sin is what makes slaves uh, to their sin. And God warned humanity as clear as possible in the garden, sin will bring death. This picture of a blood-soaked people is the picture of that promised death. Something had to, to die. Blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. We may find, if we're disturbed by this picture of blood, that underneath of it, the reason that we're disturbed is we actually don't believe sin is a big deal. And underneath of that, maybe we kind of think that God is actually not going to honor his word and and make sin really bring about death. We can tend to think, well, that's kind of a hard image. I don't know if I like that. Surely God, who is love, won't actually require death. Surely he'll kind of opt us out. Surely if he's kind and compassionate, there'll be another way. But again, that's a short-sighted view if we hold to it. Yes, it's hard to look at. But here's the beauty of what we see in this. Yes, sin requires blood, but God says, I'll supply it for you, though. And I'll supply the perfect blood, and it's going to be over. Yes, it's hard to look at. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, the penalty is high. And God says, I'll pay it for you, though. I'll supply from the veins of God, the Son, the blood that you need. This is why we gather on Easter. Yes, there's beautiful eggs and nice colors and nice things. And and we got a sunny day instead of like last week when we had to do a little march around because it was gross outside. We have a beautiful day and a lot of beauty around today. And yet what we're celebrating is a pretty hard to look at day. Blood shed by the king who didn't stay down for very long. This wasn't the first imagery of the old covenant that was like this, though. If we look back, right, that that old covenant was given in Exodus 24. There was another image that that pointed to this even before. In Exodus 12 at the Passover, something pretty similar in nature happened. 
The Passover served as kind of the the final marker of the the plague where God was telling Pharaoh to let the people go. And the basics surrounding this is is that every household uh, observed a special meal. And part of that Passover preparation involved each house taking a spotless lamb and killing that lamb. And then the, the blood of that spotless lamb was taken and it was spread over the doorpost of every home. You see it, it's another image again of the same thing blood covering of people. Then that night, the angel of death came through all the land of Egypt and every house that was not covered by the lamb's blood was brought death. Exodus 11 speaks profoundly about this even before it happened as they're trying to warn Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, relent, don't do this, don't do this. This is what's gonna happen. It says, hey, even the the firstborn of Pharaoh, the highest born in the land is not gonna get out of this. No person gets to opt out. The highest born, the son of Pharaoh, is subjected to this. All the way down to the, to, to the firstborn slave daughter of the millstone grinder, even down to the firstborn of the cattle, all shall die. All that are not covered by the lamb's blood will face judgment. All who are not plunged belief the blood will face terror. Can you imagine the horror of that night waking up the next morning? Is all who rejected God and the covering that he made available. Again, when your mind goes, that sounds harsh, I don't like that he made a covering available. There was a way out and people didn't take it. All the people who did not take the warning faced the wrath of God. It would have been unimaginable. And we need to make sure to see uh, kind of the picture laid out here. What stopped the angel of death from going into some of the homes? Was it the social status of the people inside the home? Was it the elegance of the building that that it looked at and goes, no, I don't really need to go in there? Was it the financial responsibility of the head of the household, the political views, the education, the the, the side of of the the town that the house was on? Was it the morality of the people inside, the the physical beauty, the skin color, the race, the gender? No, the the angel of death came to all houses the same, whether it be a house of, of stone of a rich man or a house of straw and mud. It came to the educated and the uneducated. It came to the foreigner and to the citizen. The only differentiation, the only thing that stopped the judgment was the blood covering. The only thing that kept back the wrath of God was the blood covering the people. We need to track a little further. Because blood had already been shed by the spotless lamb, because death had already come, purification had been made. The people of God then put their faith in the substitutionary sacrifice God made. So put yourself in that position. Hey, I'm going to need all of you to make a meal, kill a lamb, spread the blood on your house. You're going to need what? Yeah, I'm going to need you to take the blood. I need you to spread it on the the house and the wrath of God will not come for you. It it would have been difficult to go, why would I do that? It took faith to go, okay, I'll trust in you. God made available a substitute for them and it's what has saved them. This is a salvation by faith. You see the foreshadowing to to the new covenant and the new Testament. What we notice is Passover is a foreshadowing of Jesus even before the old covenant came. It was foreshadowing the the substitutionary blood sacrifice that Jesus would make. Sam Storm says this, and I think it may be helpful. There is no greater or more eternally important theme in all of Scripture than that of the shed blood of the sacrificial substitute. For example, when Paul writes in Romans 3.25 that God has set forth 
that the Lord Jesus Christ be the propitiation by or through his blood. His point is that what quenched the wrath of God and averted the death stroke of divine judgment was not primarily Jesus' life, perfect and sinless though it may be, nor is teaching wise and instructive as it may be, but rather the shedding of the blood on the cross of Calvary. Looking at the lens of scripture, we see this image of substitutionary sacrifices on repeat. We saw it in the Passover in Exodus 12. We see it in the initiation of the old covenant uh, in, in Exodus 24. We see it on repeat over and over and over as the old covenant is being carried out by the, the people of God or Israel for years and years and years. This pattern of blood covering a people to avert judgment is central to the theme of redemption throughout all of scripture. While in our world, many will think that sin is an idea that can be rejected by the masses. While the call to a morality is dictated by God is scoffed at or or seemed ridiculous, while the doctrine of hell or judgment or eternal separation from God is dismissed widely all over uh, our world, the need for redemption is considered uh, barbaric or outdated. And the very notion of the wrath of God is even called abusive and, and maybe insane. Even with all the world saying all of those things, here's the reality. Each man, woman, and child is going to have to decide, just like the people in Exodus 12, thousands of years ago, will the blood of another cover me or will I be on my own? No person gets out of this. Will the blood that is supplied, the substitutionary blood that God supplied for me, will that cover me? where I go, I'll take my chances on my own. And it doesn't matter how loudly the world calls salvation or uh, redemption antiquated or dumb, right? They can puff out their chest. Our voice believes that because you say period and yell loudly that you have the truth. It doesn't matter how boldly they proclaim that Christians have lost their mind and it doesn't matter how much they think that we have evolved past religion. Think of it, there would have been people in the first Passover who ignored it. In Exodus 11, they're warned, hey, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. There would have been people who, who kind of declared, I don't need that nonsense. I don't need that substitutionary blood. I'm not putting that over me. That is weird. I'm not afraid of your God. I'm not afraid of his judgment. If you think he's loving and he's really good, he's not going to do any of that. They would have been the people screaming the next morning because they had no substitute to stand in for them. Is this hard to look at? Absolutely but you'll never understand the beauty of Jesus if you don't look it in the face. We cling to what many consider useless or insane, and we do it gladly. Jesus stood in my place. I put my faith in his blood. Oh, that there was blood that was shed for me. Oh, the good news of that. Charles Spurgeon says this. Oh, how precious is the blood red shield. My soul cower thou down under it when the darts of hell are flying. This is the chariot, the covering whereof is purple. Let the storm come and the deluge rise. Let even the fiery hail descend beneath that crimson pavilion. My soul must must rest assured for what can touch me when I'm covered with his precious blood. This is the beauty. If you are under the blood of Christ, as Spurgeon says, what can get you? Going back to the text in Hebrews, verse 23 begins by showing us uh, that the old covenant was 
different. And, and through Hebrews in the last couple chapters, we've been dealing with this over and over and over. Right? It was inaugurated and carried out in the copies of the heavenly places. Remember the, the temple or the, the tabernacle. This means a copy of the throne room of God. Earthly priests, high priests would go in once a year and they would offer the blood of other animals that they brought in. But verse 24 through 26 shows us that Jesus is infinitely superior than they are. Because he doesn't enter into some earthly tabernacle with blood of a sacrificed lamb. Jesus instead enters the the real heavenly tabernacle in God's presence with his own blood. The final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, his blood, the precious blood of the lamb of God was given. The author makes sure to reinforce the implications of what that means in the text. Jesus didn't have to go give this sacrifice every year. He didn't have to do it on repeat. His sacrifice on the cross and going to God himself instead of in the copies was the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices from here on out. This is what our hearts focus on or should be focused on on Easter weekend. Christ has done what nothing else could do. Christ has offered the blood covering that lasts for an eternity. Christ has made available a covering for the doorposts of our hearts so that we may stand as those who are redeemed fully and forever. We have an eternal redemption because of what he has done. We have a fountain. We have a spotless lamb that is our substitute from God. What is our inheritance because of this? We stand before God now and forevermore if our faith is in Jesus and we are following him as those who are redeemed. Our bill is paid. We are bought out of slavery we aren't captive anymore, and we never need to worry about being, needing to, or being taken captive again. You don't need a redo of your sacrifice. You don't need a, man, I had a really bad first quarter of the year. Do I need a refresher of the sacrifice? Because I, I was bad, bad. You, you don't need that. We have everything that we need to stand before God clean. And even more than clean, we stand before God as his children. This is the beauty. Christ doesn't just get us a pass out of trouble. He restores all that was lost. The lion came and laid down his life as the lamb so that sinners like you and me could have a substitute. So we may, as the hymn says, lose all of our guilty stains. Is that good news to you that you don't have to feel shame and dirty and not enough anymore because the Lord Jesus gave the perfect blood for you and you lose that when you're submerged? This is the precious blood of Christ. It's foolishness to some. It's offensive to some. It's fairy tale to some. But to us, it's our victory. It's our hope and it's our joy and it is our great treasure. There's a fountain. And through it, I lost my stains. And I have an eternal promise through it. That's why the the song, I almost sent Garrett like eight songs this morning, but... I love the song, My Victory. Oh, your love bled for me. Oh, your blood in crimson streams. Oh, your death is hell's defeat. A cross meant to kill is my victory. Right? That's where the substitute comes in. Verse 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, Why? Because he already did. But to save those who are eagerly awaiting. That's a really good promise. 
See, the ending of the text shares us the full truth about Easter weekend for us. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there is a blood-stained cross. Uh, yes, the event of the cross is, is horrific and unimaginably brutal. And Christ hung on it, and he said, it is finished, and he died. And at that moment, even creation reacted. The, the word says that it got dark, and the earth literally quaked as God the Son died on a Roman cross. If that were the end of the story, as Paul says, we would all be without hope and stuck in our sin. There would be no hope at all, but it wasn't the end. Three days in the grave, and that was all she wrote. The grave couldn't hold him. Christ, the Lamb of God, rose again. And this is another wrinkle as we look at the old substitute images in the Old Testament. This is another wrinkle that nothing else had. Every other drop of substitutionary blood that was ever spilled, they all stayed dead. Every sacrifice is swallowed by the death in the grave and absorbed back into the ground and became dust. But Christ, the King, was raised by the will of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the fullness of Easter, the death of God. It's the hard part. And then the victory and the conquest of the resurrection of God for his people. Christ shed his blood to bring redemption first. And then Christ stood back up again to live again after. Verse 28, 7 and 28 says it really succinctly. And, and, and this truth kind of needs to be looked at. It was, it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Now, this is the fate of all, all men, women, and children, right? The, the fate of everyone, life, death, then judgment. The unfolding that, that it wants you to see is almost like a, a two-act play, right? Where there's an intermission and the beginning. In the first act, we see the life of the person, and, and it goes through their life, and it ends with their death. And then the curtain closes. Then as the curtain pulls back open for act two, the act starts with judgment. It starts with the question whether a person has a covering or not. And the remainder of that second act is colored by the answer. Those who have the covering of the Lamb of God receive no wrath. They walk in the restoration of all things in what we call the new heavens and new earth, where death no longer haunts, sin no longer destroys, where the perfect king reigns perfectly over the perfected creation. And those who don't have the covering of Christ, again, the substitute made available, they receive the due penalty. Yes, that's hard to sit on. Yes, that's heavy to sit in. But the wrath of God for the sins committed against God lands on them. Their lives have stood as a functional rejection of God so their eternity will walk out an eternity without God. That's how it goes for humanity, death and then judgment as a second act. But for Christ, a little different, right? So says Christ died and the curtains are, are trying to close, right? Okay, this is what happened. Like draw them close and then all of a sudden they, they stop and they have to go back open. Why? Because he gets up. It wasn't over. He didn't stay dead. He snatched the keys of death in the process. He paid for all the sins of those who are the fathers. And then he ascends back to the right hand of the father a little bit later. Talk about a plot twist, right? Curtains are trying to come in. Like, no, no, there's more. And then the second act will be his second return, his second advent. 
He's not going to have to deal with sin the second time around because he already defeated it. This time Christ will come not to pay any price, but to save those eagerly awaiting for him. This saving will be when Christ comes and fully ends sin and death's reign over us. When Christ comes and wipes away every tear and everything that is broken, uh, it's when I believe C.S. Lewis says it's like everything sad is going to become untrue. This is a picture of Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That place broken by sin. The place that our hearts looks across the horizon and says it shouldn't be that way. That place is put away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I, hear, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things, they've passed away. They're they're in their rear view, their history. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. No one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. What we celebrate on Easter weekend is what the author of Hebrews spoke about. If you are in Christ, you have an eternal inheritance right now. Not a hopeful one, not a possible one, a promised by God, eternal inheritance. You are now no longer a slave to sin or needing to worry about its penalty if you are in Christ. You are redeemed, the perfect lamb of God painted over you with his perfect blood. You do not have to worry about trying to get God to forgive you. You have been forgiven and you are loved and you are adopted and now you are free to walk in that love and obey God, not worry that he's gonna get angry with you. So now all who are in Christ are to live in eager expectation, the author says, for him to come back. Why? Because the grave couldn't hold him, so we wait eagerly for him to come back and see what's going to happen. For him to take uh, his rightful place and make everything right once again for the consummation of all things. The simple question that we have for us today, if we are following Christ, if we've put our faith in him for the problem of our sin, if that is the, the truth for us, the, the, the question that this text is, is like, hey, are you excited for this? Do you have eager expectation for this day? When you'll see him face to face, Because if you are his, you should be. You have an amazing future. Yes, things are hard here. Yes, there's been some tears and some some brutality and some difficulty, but you have a promised inheritance that you can't even wrap your mind around. Sin can't destroy it. Heaven is your home, and the one that death couldn't keep down is your king. Are you excited for that? The play today is to thank God for the substitute in Jesus that he offered to thank Christ for giving the the blood and his faithfulness, to thank the Spirit for showing you your need for Jesus and making you new through your faith in Christ. Because of that, we are not those without hope. 
We have a living hope. How great of a news is that? There's a fountain for you. And through it, you lose all your guilty stains. You're clean. And one day, Christ will come for you. Everything broken here will be undone. The perfect king will be there. There will be no votes. There will be no political fighting. There will be no war, no gnashing of teeth or rage. There'll be a perfect king and things put back together. If you're here and you say, man, I I don't know if I'm eagerly awaiting on Jesus. I don't even know if my hope is in him. I'm just kind of like leaning on that hope that God is love and I'm just going to kind of like skate out that I'll just be able to escape judgment. And I would just tell you the only way to be redeemed is through the fountain of the Lamb. It is to ask Jesus to be your Savior and to follow him yourself. You can't assume you have a covering. You can't hope that you are fine and get a covering. You don't get to, to kind of leverage your position and go, I'm not as bad as them, so surely I'll get a covering. You don't assume a covering. You don't latch on to your best friend's covering. The only way is to take the substitute that God has given you, yourself, to have him as your covering. In simple terms, depending on where you've come from in the church world, it's to pray and ask the Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a savior, will you save me? I need your son. I need your forgiveness. I need the hope that you give me. Will you forgive me and help me teach me to follow you? My hope is that if you haven't done that, that you would that you would maybe for the first time understand that you have an eternal inheritance yourself and get to stand clean and free and adopted and not lay your head on the pillow and go, I wonder if things will be okay. The most loving thing that I can do is say, please, please don't assume the substitute. Ask the Lord to save you. And the beauty of that is you don't have to cross your fingers and hope he will. He's faithful and kind. And if your heart is already even wrestling with that, here's the beauty. The Holy Spirit is already drawing you in saying, I love you. Come to the Father. Come to the Father. The hope is that you would. Those who are in Christ would rejoice gladly in what they have. And maybe those who are not would come to the table and see that God is good and accept the substitute that God has provided. Your good father has made a way out for all of you and for all of your guilty stains if you would come and you would ask. Band, you guys come back up. We're gonna uh, take communion uh, today. We have three songs on the back end. Uh, You don't have to be a member to take communion with us. All that we ask is that your faith be in Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 reminds us, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What we're doing when we come to the table in worship is we're taking the bread and we're taking the, 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 the juice and we're dipping it in and we're reminding that God has sent Jesus and his body was broken and his blood was shed. Why? So that we can have a substitute. And as we eat it, we're reminding ourselves again that God has made a way. God has made a way. I can put down my labor and I can trust fully in what he has done and I can be known by him and I can be redeemed eternally. My hope is that your heart would be encouraged at the table. You see the beauty and the kindness of God for you there. Again, you don't have to be a member to come and take. We just ask that your faith be in Christ if you're going to come and take with us.
Uh, we'll play a couple songs here, three songs at the end, probably leave a little bit of time in between maybe the first and the second. And, and here, here's the hope. I don't want to be in a rush. So as we sit back for, for a little bit in between some of the songs, I would just ask you to, to kind of marinate on the reality of what the Lord has done. Go to him in prayer. If you're struggling to believe in the sacrifice given to you, would you tell the Father to, that, hey, I need some help believing in that. I feel so distant from that. If, if you feel far away off or if you feel guilty and, and all of these things are just weighing on you, tell me, man, I, I don't feel like all of my stains are, are clean. Will, will you help me? We just spend some time kind of resting in the reality of what you have in Christ. And then at any time after, you can come up and take. The hope is that we would become what we've continued talking about all year long, a people of prayer. So we'll have a little margin in between and ask us, hey, hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's wrestle over this truth and what it means for us. And then let's come to the table and rejoice with loud voices because our King is alive.